Okay, good morning, Boker Tov. This, uh, this morning we have the privilege of studying Parsha Shlach together. Now, of course, when a person thinks about Parsha Shlach, they, um, they automatically think of the story of the Maraglim, the story of the spies who are sent to investigate the land. And there's much, much, much to say about this. Was it Hashem's intent to send the spies? Was it the people's intent to send the spies? If it was such a disaster to send the spies, why in the Aftorah do we read the very first uh, parak of Sefer Yehoshua? What do they do when they get into the land? Yeshua sent spies again. Two instead of twelve this time. But if it was such a disaster... Yeah, but if it was such a disaster the first time, and one should have a sense of somewhat blind faith in Hashem, He says it's going to work out, it'll work out, then why did they send the spies? But in any case, uh, they send the spies, Moshe Davin through Yeshua. We know that Kalit uh, goes to Hebron, and the, uh, the spies go and they investigate the land. They come back from, from investigating the land, they give a terrible report, and that night everybody cries miserably. What night is that? Tishabav. Of course, it's Tishabav. They cried for no reason. Akash Baruch says, I'll give you a Bechil Adoros. I will give you a reason to cry. It becomes the most inauspicious day on our calendar. And throughout our history, terrible tragedies and negative events have happened. Of course, the number one question to study with the Maraglam, which we will not study this morning, is that, um, is that how could it be, how could it possibly be that these individuals who served in the capacity as the spies, they weren't schleppers, they weren't nebuchs, they weren't off the street. These were the Nasim, these were the Tamidei Chachamim, these were the leaders of the generation. And they didn't have faith in Hashem? They came back and they lacked faith in the Almighty? How is it possible? How could it possibly be? Where did they go wrong? What in fact was their mistake? That's a subject of big discussion. Is it as, it, is it as simple as it seems? They came back and they were afraid. They were giants and we were like Chagavim, we're like uh, grasshoppers in their eyes. This is a land that swallows its inhabitants. Is it as simple as it seems that they were anxious and nervous and fearful and frightful and they came back and they reported negatively? It's hard to imagine. I mean, you sent the Chazanish and Rav Moshe Feinstein and Shlomo Zalman and the Rav on a mission that Hashem says, I'm giving you the land. And they come back and say, not so into it. We, we wouldn't be able to dismiss it so superficially as they were rebelling. So what's really going on? That's a question for another time. But in any case, the people react uh, with a sense of hysteria. They're not satisfied. And uh, of course, the Kodesh Baruch has finally had it. Moshe davens to Hashem. Hashem forgives. It's a very strange conversation. We're also not going to study this between Moshe and Hashem. What exactly is the tactic that Moshe takes? What is his strategy? How does he get God to forgive him? To forgive them, rather. It seems that Hashem has totally had it. And nevertheless, Moshe is successful in appeasing the Almighty. What is his strategy? How does he do so? But in any case, despite Hashem forgiving them, he does uh, tell them they're going to wander for 40 years, and he spells out their decree of what it will be in the, in the uh, desert, and that that generation will not live to go into Israel. Um, they realize it's too late. Some try to go up. It's too late. Then we're given the mitzvah of challah, a very sacred mitzvah in the, uh, in the Torah, a mitzvah that... Uh, we associate as a, one of the women's, women's mitzvahs, but it really it's a universal mitzvah. Anytime that you're baking over five pounds of uh, dough, that you have a mitzvah to separate challah with a bracha. Between three to five pounds, you separate without a bracha. But the idea was the dough was given to the Kohen, and the way the Torah describes it, the challah is separated a portion, and it's given to the Kohen. Why don't we give it to a Kohen today? What do we do with it today? We burn it. Yeah, so not to knock their Kohenim, but because today our Kohenim are not miyuchasim. We don't uh, absolutely accept their lineage. 
So uh, therefore, since we're not positive on a biblical mitzvah, whether their lineage is intact, we burn the uh, the dough that we that we separate. Issues of idolatry, and that brings us to the part that I want to study today, which is Perek Tesvav, chapter fifteen, pasuk Lamed Beis, verse thirty-two. Yes. Was uh, included in those who were dying out in the uh, no. 40 years? They were no. not. They were not. Levi, Levi was not. Now, Levi was not. It's interesting because Levi was not, and the reason we studied this in, in Parshish Bamidbar here, Levi was not we, because they did not participate in the Egel. Right. So they got to go into Israel. Of which the Sif Seichachamim, in a comment on Rashi, asks, I don't understand. I thought it's the Maragl. I thought it was the Chetam Maraglim, which is why they didn't go into Israel. And Shevet Levi, the tribe of Levi, did participate in the Chetam Maraglim. So why is it that all of Levi survived and was able to go in? That's uh, that he leaves as a question. Okay. So Perak Tesvav Pasuk Lamed Beis. You may say, why are we starting in the middle of a Perak? And of course, the answer is, it's not the middle of a Perak. Again, as I've reminded you a number of times, it's only from a uh, non-Jewish perspective that this is the middle of a subject. From a Jewish perspective, that pay, if you look in the Stone Chumash, page 816, if you look on the bottom of page 814, you'll see that there's a break in the line because that reflects, this is a new paragraph, new paragraph, new subject. That's the pay. This is a break in the line and it represents a new section and it's a good place to pick up. The Jewish people were in the desert and they discovered somebody who was violating, who was desecrating the Shabbos. Those who discovered him drew him close, namely the, the individual gathering the wood. In other words, they arrested him. They... Uh, they uh, brought him to Moshe, to Aaron, and to the people. And they imprisoned him, they incarcerated him, because they didn't know what's the rule. What do you do with this individual? So what's really going on here? So first of all, look at Rashi. This is a... Why... What, what's bothering Rashi? Let me, let me ask it to you this way. Remember, I've told you many times, Rashi's always coming to answer a question. Something was bothering Rashi, Rashi's always coming to answer a question. In other words, if Rashi thinks that there's nothing to explain here, there's nothing puzzling, he doesn't provide an insight, he doesn't provide a comment. He provides a comment when he thinks there's a question. And that's his style. Different commentaries have different style. Ibn Ezra's focused on diktuk, on grammar, and the, or Chaim on, on the mystical levels. Everyone is different. So what's bothering Rashi here? He says, The, the Pasuk is speaking in a, about... disparagingly, degradingly about the Jewish people because they only observed one Shabbos. They were given the mitzvah of Shabbos, they kept it once, and by the second weekend, already, it was violated. They couldn't even get two in a row. They couldn't even get two Shabboses in a row. Why is Rashi explaining that? Where is that coming from? So look at the Sifsei Chachamim, one of the super commentaries on Rashi. Perish, he explains, Dim lokein bamidbar lamali. Why did the Torah have to say, Vayu b'nei Yisrael bamidbar? If I would have asked you, does anything bother you about this Pasuk? You could have just said, they found the person violating Shabbos. Why do we need to know where they are? We already know where they are. What's the whole Sefer called? The whole Sefer is called in the desert. So we already know their geographical location. Why does this section have to begin with reminding us, it teaches us that when they got to the desert, immediately 
this individual violated Shabbos, it wasn't beforehand. He says, you see from certain Gemaras that the mitzvah of Shabbos was really given at Mara. Mara was one of the locations where they stopped to encamp. That was even prior to Har Sinai. So this is not the first Shabbos. So how do you reconcile this with the statement that if only they had kept the first Shabbos, then no nation could have... Uh, Oppressed them, could have ruled over them. So Yeshlomo Derashi Nizar Mikosh Zuba Parshas B'Shalach Shapir Sham Sham Samlo B'Mara Nasal Lahen Miktas Parshas Shisalskim B'Ham Shamas the part of Adoma B'Dinim Mashma Shodim Machukim Mahem Valimid Osam Ki Osar Kashbroch Lutzav Cheschem Mekach Moshapir Shor Ramban Sham Parshas B'Shalach and Kenon and Stabo Adayim B'Shmirish Malach Shabbos Kiyom Lilmod Mitzvah Shabbos. Earlier at Mara, Hidusuf Seichamim is clarifying. Before Har Sinai, they weren't given the observance of Shabbos. They weren't taught how to observe Shabbos. They were given a concept of Shabbos. They were instructed you will be getting a concept on the seventh day of rest. There's a concept that you will work six days, you will conquer the world, but the seventh day you will be at rest at peace with the natural with the natural world. So it's only here that they started actually putting into place Shabbos. They kept one, and by the second Shabbos already they had broken it. Genusan Shah Yisrael. This is Genai, like the like the uh, Haggadah. Mascha Beginusan Messiah Bishvach. This is Beginusan Shah Yisrael. This is disparaging of the Jewish people, it's negative about the Jewish people, that we couldn't even keep it going for two weeks in a row. One Shabbos, and by the second Shabbos, it was already being broken. There's a number of things you could take from here. One is Taka, the Genus, and Shal Yisrael. But another thing you could take from here is that the challenge of observing Shabbos has existed since Shabbos was instituted. In other words, that even though we could speak for hours on end about the beauty of Shabbos and the magnificence of Shabbos and how enriching Shabbos is and what it does for family values and quality time and spirituality and being at peace with nature and turning off the electronics and v'chulei v'chulei, I could speak for six hours about Shabbos. But at the end of the day, it's been as difficult to observe Shabbos since it was given. So when you talk about the half Shabbos phenomenon, the kids texting and all that stuff, don't say, well, what's the big deal and our grandparents all kept Shabbos? And Everybody has struggled to keep Shabbos. They couldn't even... The first Shabbos the Jewish people kept by the second Shabbos and in the Midbar, there was no texting and cell phones and Wii's and TV's and DVD's and... That wasn't, and yet, and yet, it was difficult to observe Shabbos. The Mekoshesh Eitz in this individual was gathering. Why does this appear? Uh, so that's Rashi's explanation. What bothered Rashi was why the reminder Bamidbar? We already know where this is. Why Bamidbar? To tell us already by the second Shabbos, they already couldn't keep it going. The Ramban, Nachmanides introduces this section. Pasuk Lamed Bey says the Ramban. Ulopasha Azos, Somachachare, Inyan HaMakoshesh. The Ramban was bothered by the same question. Why is the Pasuk reminding us Bamidbar? We already know where they are. They're in the desert. That's the name of the Sefer. Why do we need to be reminded? Rashi gave one reason. The Ramban says, you know why? They shouldn't have been in the Midbar anymore. Where should they have been? They should have been in Israel. It's because of the Chet Maraglam in this parsha that they were 40 years they spent wandering in the desert and the Ramban doesn't use this language but I would employ the language of the Mishnah Avera Gorera Savera that when one it's a slippery slope we are creatures of habit we are creatures of momentum 
And when we're doing good things, good things continue to happen, we continue to do good things. And when we make mistakes, we most often compound our mistakes and add to them and make them worse. And that's indeed what happened here. Who knows, had they never delayed to be in the desert, had they gone immediately into Israel, whether this individual would have violated Shabbos. Maybe the positive experience, the joy, the energy of entering Israel, the celebration of entering Israel, maybe would have uh, been so over, overwhelming that this individual never would violate Shabbos. But says the Ramban, because they delayed and they were left in the environment in the, of the Midbar, that context it was a slippery slope. Avera Goreras Avera. Now the next thing happened, which was the Mikoshesh. So the Ramban also was bothered. Why? We know where they are. Said Rashi to tell us Genus and Israel they couldn't even keep two. Says the Ramban, no, a different reason. But Midbar to tell us it's because of the Chet Maraglam that we're told about immediately prior. That's why they're still in the Midbar. So by Midbar, yes, we know they're there, but they shouldn't be there. Really, we look back and we say we already know they're there. But we should be saying, where are they now? Are they on their way into Israel? Are they in Israel? So it's already to tell us by Midbar, no, they're in the Midbar and they're going to be there for 40 years because of what they did and that delay perhaps is what contributed to this individual making the mistake. Okay. Look at the Orachayim uh, HaKadosh. If you notice another language. Nobody, I haven't done this in a while with you. But ask me some questions. They're in the desert. And they found a person gathering wood on the day of Shabbos. Any questions? Anything, Mali? Who is he? Okay, who is he bothers me less. Who is he? Maybe we want to know his name. But then again... Why do we need to know his name? Who found him is a good question. I would describe your question differently. Vayim tzu, to find somebody, when do you find something? When you're looking. So why is the Torah implying they were looking? Vayim tzu. It's a funny language. It could, see, it could say vayiru. They saw, they observed an individual who was violating Shabbos. But it doesn't say that. It says they discovered, they found an individual. Maybe he did it once, so they had an eye on him. Okay, we'll see. Another question is, it should say, Because the whole violation, you could gather wood on Sunday through Friday. So why do you begin by telling us what he was doing? They found a person gathering wood on Shabbos. It should say, it was Shabbos, and they found a person gathering wood. Why is it specifically in the order that it's in? So these are some questions just on this Pasuk alone, plus the other question of Bamidbar, which we already answered. So look at... And it repeats also Ish. Right, repeats it again. Yeah. By the way, what was his violation of gathering wood? That in itself is a not simple. Look at the Orachayim. What did this guy do wrong, gathering wood? It's a big deal. Of the Malachas of Shabbos, what's the violation? There's 39 categories of creative labor. We deduce them from the Mishkan. Whatever contributed to the construction, whatever contributed to the construction of the Mishkan is deemed creative labor that becomes prohibited on Shabbos. We extrapolate there are 39 such categories and there are many, many, many subcategories of the 39. And whenever we talk about something being usher, forbidden on Shabbos, we're not talking about a Dirabanan here. Aside from the 39 creative light categories, the Rabban on the Chazal established uh, fences around them. And they came up with rabbinic laws in order to protect us from violating the biblical laws. But here, when they're talking about the death penalty, a capital punishment for this individual, clearly it's not a rabbinic violation. It wasn't that he did something rabbinically prohibited. He did something biblically prohibited. And the question is, what did he do? 
He gathered wood. Which one of the 39 categories of creative labor is that? So says the Urachayim, Kasha, Ma'ba HaKasav Lashmeinu Shayitzra Midbar. He asks the same question as Rashi in the Ramban, which is why is the Torah reminding us where? V'yizbor api ma'sha amr b'mesech Shabbos. In Shabbos, Daftzadi Vav Amad Beiz. The Gemara there says, Amr of Yudah Mashmo, Mekoshesh Ma'vir Dalet Amos B'Rishus Harabim Haya Adkan. The Gemara in Shabbos says, you know what his violation was? He was walking four Amos, six feet, in the public thoroughfare. He was carrying. Beyond You're not allowed to carry Natchum. Dalet Amos B'Rishus Harabim. You're not, he's no Erev. There's no Erev in the Midbar. You can't carry in a Rishus Harabim. In a public thoroughfare, you're not allowed to carry more than four cubits, four amos. An amos is a foot and a half, about, to debate, but about six feet. So he was carrying this wood six feet in the Rishus Harabim. Gam Amru B'Mesech HaShabbos, Tana Sartaya Pataya Zuhi Rishus Harabim, V'Hikshu B'Shas V'Lakshav Nami Midbar, D'Hatani Yezer Rishus Harabim, Sartaya V'Midbar, V'Teret Abayi Lokashi, Kam Bizman Shri Yisrael Shri B'Midbar, Kam Bizman Azeh, Perish Rashi, Bizman Ahu Chashav Rishus Harabim, Bizman Azeh, Eino Mokam Hilach Rabim. Perish Ubrais Diktani V'Hamidbar, this is a little side discussion, which is you can only call something Rishus Rabbim. It's a big debate exactly how do you define Rishus Rabbim, because that has very big implications. You can't create an Erev. An Erev only helps you with a Rishus Yachid. An Erev can't help you with a Rishus Rabbim. If something was deemed a, th- a public thoroughfare, building an Erev is not going to help you at all. So. Um, how do you define a public thoroughfare? It's a big debate. Manhattan, for example, Rav Moshe's chuvas, and the big debate is Manhattan a public thoroughfare? So, based on the Rashi and the Gemara, it sounds like the 600,000 people somewhere defines a public thoroughfare. How do you define 600,000 people there? 600,000 people go on I-95 between Miami and what's the northern tip of I-95? Whatever. A day up to Maine. The question is, so 600,000 people have to traverse how big of an area during how much time how do you define a public thoroughfare but in any case this is just a tangent where the Gemara basically is saying what do you mean a midbar is not a Rishus Arabim a midbar is a barren desolate place how could you call that a Rishus you tell me Boca Raton is a Rishus Yachid it could have an Erev Manhattan according to some opinions the Rishus Yachid it could have an Erev and the midbar the desert the desolate place so of course the Gemara says no normally it's desolate it doesn't need an Erev when the Jewish people who were at least 600,000 men but were really 2 to 3 million people it had the status of Rishus for that time and this individual carrying six feet four amas within the camp which had a status of Rosh Hashanah at the time that's what he violated we have to hold off the questions because remember I instituted the new policy questions till the end for the sake of the people listening and that's why the Orachayim Akadosh explains his opinion of why the Pasuk introduces us with where they were. In order to explain what he did wrong, you have to know their Bamidbar. They were in the Midbar, the Midbar, the desert, as the status of a public thoroughfare, because they were there en masse. And that's why he was guilty when he was gathering this wood. It was a biblical violation of carrying four amas in a Rosh Hashanah. If it were not Bamidbar, that's why the Torah had to say Vayu B'nei Yisrael Bamidbar, says the Orachayim. If they weren't Bamidbar, if Vayu B'nei Yisrael B'mantoya circle, so then there's a Yishas there's an Erev, then they wouldn't have been guilty. So, 
the identification of the geographic location by Midbar is there in order to provide a context to understand what did he do wrong. Namely, he carried Bershus Aram. That's what the Yorachayim says. He continues. He says, according to the Rambam, it's a little bit differently. How do you define a midbar? He goes on about the about the uh, technicalities of is the desert a rishusarabim. But I provide that for you as a third perspective. Why does it? Again, if you take anything away from here, it's to learn how to ask questions. Rashi, the Ramban, the Yorchaim were bothered. All of us kept reading. We just kept reading. They stopped and said, "By midbar? Why do we have to be told by midbar?" And they each gave a different answer which is part of the beauty of Torah, is that there's so many different perspectives, so many different answers that you can give. But on to the next question we asked, which was Vayim Tzu. Why the word Vayim Tzu? It should have told me, they saw, they observed this individual who was gathering the wood. Uh, okay, but even witnesses can observe, they can see. Do they have to discover why Vayim Tzu they discovered? Says the Orachayim HaKadosh, Amar Lashem Metziah. The Torah employs the term Metziah. Which means a discovery. They, Moshe specifically sent people out to check is anyone violating Shabbos. So this discovery, what the Orachayim is saying essentially, I'm not sure exactly why. This is the Yalkut Shemoni, the Medrash says that Moshe sent out policeman sent out whoever it was and said I want you to walk through the camp and check now maybe what it means to say is it was the second Shabbos you gotta understand we all have we all we all not we all I and many of us grew up with Shabbos as a given we've known nothing else I can proudly tell you that in my entire life even when I was in high school and not on my best behavior bless you bless you bless you I have never willingly violated Shabbos. I'm sure I haven't been perfect. I'm sure in high school on Borer and Schita uh, and I'm sure there were plenty of things I didn't do perfectly. I've never willingly violated Shabbos. So in my life, I don't know what it means to not have a Shabbos. I don't know. I couldn't imagine. I couldn't imagine. It's automatic. But if you put yourselves into the shoes of a nation, two to three million large, who had never, Shabbos never existed on earth. It never existed. I mean, it's the equivalent of my instituting for you and for the shul that from now on, on Tuesdays, we will not use electricity. Who would remember? Who would understand why? Who could be so disciplined? Who would be able to institute, institute it flawlessly? So for the Jewish people in the Midbar, we're saying, well, what's the big deal? Keep Shabbos. What kind of a... He sent out policemen? You know, I certainly would not have a contract renewal if I said, for now on, we're hiring guards to walk around on Toy Circle to, uh, right, to check out the observance of Shabbos. So that's what Moshe was doing? What kind of coercion, what kind of religion was this? Understand it in the context. This was a people who had never kept Shabbos. It wasn't a given. They had never, and it wasn't like there was a whole other group that kept Shabbos, and now they're joining it. No one kept Shabbos. It was new to all. So Moshe sent them out, maybe not as guards, I wouldn't, maybe I'll, I will, I don't know what the Yalkut intends, but I will amend it. Then maybe he sent them out to support people who are confused, about to heat up my food, not really sure exactly what to do. Oh, look, here's a support system coming, knocking on my door, asking me if I have any questions about these new things. Yeah, Shabbos police, or I would look at it as a Shabbos support. Support group. Support, a Shabbos support system. 
So, um, in any case, that's how the Orchayim explains Vayim Tzu'u is not happenstance. It wasn't chance. They didn't happen upon this person who was violating Shabbos. They discovered him because indeed they were perusing the camp and they were, so to say, looking. Now we asked lastly, the third question on this Pasuk, it should say, Biyoma Shabbos, it was Shabbos, Mikoshe Sheitzim. They saw someone gathering wood. Why the opposite order? The Orachayim deals with this question as well. Hittim Zichron HaMaisa Kodim Zichron HaYom. It mentions the action, the violation, before it mentions the day. Velo Amar Biyoma Shabbos, Mikoshe Sheitzim. Lomar, to teach us. Shalonis Alei Mimenu Shabbos, Kishe Asa Maisev. If it Pasuk had indeed said, and it was Biyama Shabbos, they discovered someone who was Mekoshim, you'd say, Nabuch, this guy's Mekoshim, he's gathering wood, he doesn't remember Shabbos. Maybe he's 60 years old, 50 or 40 years old. He's never kept a Shabbos in his whole life. He kept one last week because you made him, because you taught him. But already he's back, he forgot. Maybe he so. forgot, he doesn't even realize it's Shabbos. So says the Orachayim, by the Pasuk, putting it in his order, teaching us, he was mikoshesh eitzim biyom ha-Shabbos. He was gathering wood on Shabbos. It teaches us that he knew full well it was Shabbos. This was not a act of a mistake. This was not an accident. This was not an individual who uh, forgot it was Shabbos. This was rebellion. This was a rebellious act. The rebe- it was a rebellious act of, uh, of saying, I'm not going to let a second Shabbos go. Someone is going to break this Shabbos. I'm going to be the precedent. I'm going to be the precedent of breaking Shabbos. And once there's a precedent, it's a very, very dangerous thing because it's so easy for others to fall into it. So the Orachayim says that that's why it's that order. Mekoshesh Eitzim, Biyama Shabbos. He wasn't just gathering wood. He was gathering wood knowing it's Shabbos. Had it said, and it was Shabbos, and they saw someone gathering wood, you could say, okay, he was gathering wood, Nebuch, the guy doesn't know it's Shabbos. But the fact that you say, Mikoshi did him, Biyoma Shabbos, he was gathering wood, knowing full well it was Shabbos. Now we know he was doing it as an act of rebellion. Continues the Orachayim, V'raboseinu nishakmu, lahoti davrzeh sh'yaduh ha'yashu Shabbos, mashakefa b'pasik sh'achariz ha'mikoshi t'etzim, sh'baloma sh'achar sh'odiyu Shabbos, hu'chazar l'koshish. You see in the next Pasuk, and they took this person who was Mekoshesh Eitzim El Moshev Yel Aaron. Why does it repeat the words Mekoshesh Eitzim in the next Pasuk? To teach us that even after they told him, you know it's Shabbos and you can't do that, he kept doing it. This was that so this was an act of rebellion. Oh, yes, look at Rashi. Rashi says, They warned him, and he didn't stop doing. Why is it critical that they warned him? Because one of the rules in the process of Jewish law is a person cannot be punished if they didn't receive a warning. It's a beauty of Judaism. We don't say, it's a, it's a very... It's a great leniency, so to say, of Judaism. Is you don't say, if you have two witnesses see someone doing something wrong, he or she should have known better. That's it. We give them the punishment. We say, you know what? People forget. So therefore, we can never punish unless we know that someone said, hey, brother, you're not allowed to do that. And they say, leave me alone and continue doing it. So now we have it confirmed that they're not doing it accidentally. They're doing it intentionally. How do you know this individual was warned and kept doing it? Where do you see that from the Pasuk? Gemara and Sanhedrin teaches, Chazal know, he was warned, he got Hasra, 
He was warned. By the way, the Asra has to be. It's not just you can warn and say, hey, I don't think you're allowed to do that. You have to say, you know, you're not allowed to do that because it's a violation of such and such a mitzvah, of a love. Right? And this will be your punishment. Hasra has very detailed rules also. But where do you see, how do you know that he was warned and he kept doing it anyway? So the Sif Seichachamim here kicks in. Look at the Sif Seichachamim. It doesn't say they saw that he in the past tense gathered wood. What tense is mikoshesh? It's in present tense. It's over. He is currently mikoshesh. Even after they discovered him, and even after they said to him, Hey brother, you're not allowed to do that. Remember the new system? He looked the other way and he kept gathering. He was mikoshesh in the present tense. So that's and beautiful insight is, uh, is a, I should say sharp insight is observing that the fact that the Torah doesn't say kishesh he in the past tense um, gathered wood but that he presently, currently is doing it you see he was warned and he dismissed and disregarded the warning. <coughs> now what was the hesitation of the people? Bayanicha was so bamishmar you know, this is uh, a... Mishmar means under guard, under watch guard, prison. I would say this is the first incidence of prison, but it's not, because Yosef, you know, was, was thrown in prison. But they, I guess, had a makeshift prison in the desert. They makeshift handcuffs and makeshift... I don't know how you make a tent into a prison, but anyway, they had him imprisoned because they didn't know what to do. What should you do? That's true. What should you do with him? So Rosh says, what do you mean you don't know what to do with him? They didn't know. See, they knew there's a capital punishment. Violating Shabbos is a capital crime. They knew that. But they weren't sure which death he should receive. There are four different Arba Misas based in. There are four different types of death that a person could receive. And they weren't sure which one he was deserving. So therefore they hesitated because that's what they weren't sure about. What should they do with him? It wasn't what should we do with him, should we invite him to share one Shabbos. It was what should we do with him, we know that he needs the death penalty. The question is, how? How? Now, before you react and say, what kind of religion is this? Someone who violates Shabbos, we give them the death penalty. Understand, of course, that anybody who is not knowledgeable today, people violating Shabbos, we have to give them the status of, of uh, Tinoch Shanishba. They are innocent, they're not trained, they're not educated properly. Of course, we're not talking about such a harsh, harsh punishment for them. And even the Torah itself, you know, the Gemara makes a, Mishnah makes a famous statement that a court that killed once in 70 years was a bloody court. That means to say that these capital punishments were rarely, if ever, carried out. So why would the Torah institute them? Why would the Torah tell us that if you violate Shabbos, you get the death penalty? If indeed it was rarely, if ever, carried out. The answer is the future, but the answer is also to impress upon us how strict it is. Notice, Torah wants to impress upon us that for God, this is serious stuff, this is a big deal. On the other hand, God's very compassionate. So He created all of these technicalities that would make it very challenging to ever actually carry it out. So He created the Pesha Asa Pesha Hitir. He created, God created the harsh punishment in order to impress upon us how serious this is to Him. But He also built in a lot of loopholes, a lot of technicalities, because ultimately His goal is not for anyone who violates Shabbos to die. This individual is worthy of mention because as I hinted to earlier, he's done something particularly egregious. And that is he created a precedent. Until him, no one had ever violated Shabbos. Now you can say, okay, big deal. They had only actually kept one Shabbos. They only made it through one weekend. 
But until he had the brazenness to do this, no one had ever violated Shabbos. And it's tough to tell you, in life, in life, when something is unimaginable to us, it also is much less tempting to us. And when something becomes imaginable to us, when we know of others who have done something, and lightning didn't strike them, or in this case lightning will strike them, but we know of people who have done something, you, you know, when, the, when no one's ever done it, you say, it's, it's unimaginable, I can't even, it's not a taiva, it's not a temptation for me because it's in the realm of impossible, it's unimaginable. The moment someone does something, it becomes imaginable, and therefore it becomes tempting. And that's partly why this individual, it is particularly egregious because by setting the precedent, he made it imaginable. In fact, I'll tell you, I had left you uh, um, last week with uh, a hint. I didn't tell you the answer. Two weeks ago, I'm sorry, Parshas Nasa. But I'll give you the hint this I'll give you the answer this week. I mentioned that the woman who sees, an uh, uh, individual who sees Sota Bekakula, who sees a woman, an adulterous woman, uh, in her terrible state, Yazir Atzmam that individual should um, swear off, that individual should take a vow not to drink wine. And I asked the question two weeks ago, Parshas Nasa, why? Isn't it enough that they saw the consequences? You see what happens. A woman has an affair. She ends up having to go through this humiliating process and ultimately dies a horrific death. Isn't that enough to say, I'm not having an affair? Why do you need to go above and beyond and now even take a vow not to drink wine? So I once saw a beautiful answer. This goes back uh, 15 years I saw this answer. It says, the issue is that you may not be, you may not, seeing the harsh consequences for the woman may prevent you from doing it. But fantasizing about it, thinking about it, it won't prevent you from doing it. See, once you know, oh yeah, someone can have an affair? I can't even imagine. I couldn't even imagine it. You see, if you grow up in a community where no one has ever had an affair and no one's ever heard of anyone having an affair, then, then the couples in that community... Of course they live in a world and they watch TV and movies and so on. But they say, that doesn't happen in my world. It's not part of my realm of experience. I can't even imagine it. It can't even present itself as a temptation or a fantasy because it's not in my realm of experience whatsoever. But once something is in a person's realm of experience, even if they won't actually do it because they saw the consequences, they need to do something to purge themselves of even the imagination, of even the fantasy of it. So this individual has to go a step further. Yazir They have to actually take a vow. I remember once, and I feel this way now as a rav. I had a rebbe in Israel who told me this that he was he once was counseling that one of the challenges of rabbanus of, of being a rebbe chinuch rabbanus that he was counseling somebody uh, who had done something particularly terrible like this had an affair whatever something and until that point for this rebbe. It wasn't in the realm, it wasn't Shaykh. It wasn't in the realm of possibility. Didn't know anyone who could do such a thing. That's not, it's pasnished. We don't do, no one, no one he knew. It's just not a, the moment he finished counseling with the person, did it mean this Rav is going to go have an affair? This Rav is going to go look at that on the internet? This Rav is going to go, no. But at the same time, now it, it, it cracked a little hole. You know, it, it, it found a little opening. Because now, I know, now it becomes real. Now it becomes something to have to deal with. So that's this individual. The Makoshish hates him. The, the harm that he did to the people is that he created a precedent. 
Until now, true, they had only had Shabbos for one weekend. But until now, no one had ever violated Shabbos. It was unimaginable. It wasn't in the realm of possibility. And now that he was exposed, now that the nation will be exposed to the fact that it's in the realm of possibility, there has to be serious consequences in order to offset that. Amal, and what are Would you say a Malik? In that kind of just philosophical understanding, a Malik did something that all the nations weren't all of the Jewish people, and they... Like Amalek also, yeah. Amalek also created a precedent. Yeah, yeah. So, and that's why what the Torah continues: Vayomer Hashem Moshe, Mos Yimasa Ish, Ragomos Abavanim, Kol Aidami Chutz LaMachana. What is this harsh punishment? Indeed, he's stoned. He receives stoning. So, what do they do? Vayotziu Oso Kol Aidami Chutz LaMachana. They take him out. Vayergemu Oso Abavanim, Vayamos. They stone him until he dies. Kasher Tziva Hashem as Moshe, as God commanded Moshe. Why Vayotziu Oso? They take him out. Why did they have to take him out? Why is this happening outside? Rashi says, Mikan The Sifri quotes the Medrash. You see from here that the place where the capital punishment was carried out was far away, far away from the rabbinical court. The place, the, the justice was determined was far at a distance from where it was carried out. Why is that? The Mishnah Sanhedrin tells us why. You know why? It's, a, it's also another... It's a beautiful, beautiful concept of Judaism. The idea is that we believe so deeply in process that we create an opportunity for it. So the Mishnah describes, you take that person out so that they announce loudly, if there are any witnesses, if there's anyone who has more information, then let us know. And if the, if the individual himself, if the defendant himself, on the way to being executed, says, I just thought of one more piece of evidence that could uh, corroborate my story, they take him back to the court. They reopen the case. He has, it's like defense attorney Minatora Minayan. Where, where do you see the concept that we, we believe that in the concept of a defense attorney? We want to provide every opportunity for the individual to exonerate himself. From here, that Vayotziu so. The halacha is you take him out. You don't just, the judge or jury, the Bezdin says, guilty, and a moment later you execute. You have to take him out, which gives more time once the execution is announced for any more witnesses or even the individual himself to think of more things that he could provide that could possibly exonerate him. Okay? Look at the Orachayim HaKadosh, Mekoshet Itzim Biyam HaShabbos. I'm sorry, we did that one. We did that one. Okay, so that deals with the case of the case of the Mikoshish Eitzim. That's the Mikoshish Eitzim, and then the parsha concludes with something we're very familiar with because we repeat it multiple times a day. The third paragraph of Kriya Shema, and again, you see that pay represents that it's a new section, but obviously it's still connected. God spoke to Moshe saying, "Anything interesting about that?" God spoke to Moshe saying, "Again, it's like another time or what?" It's unusual. What does it usually say? Vayidaber Hashem el Moshe lemor. What's this Vayomer Hashem el Moshe lemor? So look at the Orachayim Hakadosh. Tam Shinai Pashazus Shamar Vayomer Mashein Kim Bechol Torah Shabekulon Hu Omer Vayidaber. Says the Orachayim. Normally the Torah always says Vayidaber. Here it says Vayomer. Yizbor Apim Amaram. He quotes based on the Medrash Tanat Beilio. Shamru. When Moshe saw what happened, he says to God, See, all week long, Hashem, the men put on tefillin in the morning, it reminds them that you're here. It reminds them of their higher calling. It reminds them that they're being watched. It reminds them of their commitment. 
Shabbos comes, they don't put on tefillin. How are they going to remember? How are they going to remember? God says, I'm giving them tzitzis. I'm going to tie a string around their f- finger. You know, you want to remember something, you tie a string around your finger, God says, I'll tie a string around their clothing. Amira is Lashon Raka, it's a softer language. But Amira is appeasing. So that's what the Rechaim says, Vayomer, Hashem provided Moshe an answer. Vayomer is kind of a response, more Vayadaber is instructional, Vayomer is responsive. So Moshe was bothered. All week long, they put tefillin on, they remember to be obedient. Shabbos, there's no tefillin, how will they remember? Vayomer Hashem and Moshe Lemor, Daber B'nei Yisrael, V'yamarta Aleim, God's response is, don't worry, I'll give you something to even be able to remember on Shabbos. It's called tzitzis. So this is a psukum uh, we're familiar with. Tell them, Make tzitzis on the corners of their garments. This is a perpetual mitzah. And you place on the tzitzis, that's on the corner, a string of tzitzis. What is tzitzis? Rashi Tseva Yarok Shel Chilazon. It's a turquoise um, color that comes from the Chilazon snail. That comes from the Chilazon animal. Correct. Wu has that, that, that Chilaz obviously was worn for a long time. It was then lost. The Radzina Rebbe in the last century felt that he rediscovered it and reinstituted it. Rabbi Klein wears Radzina Chilaz. Uh, till today, and Raziner Chasidim wear those tchelas. It's by many been disproven that his color is not the real tchelas, but more contemporary times, a group of uh, guys who live in, in Gush um, have rediscovered, based on a lot of scientific evidence and work and research, I forgot what it's called, the, uh, I don't remember the name of the snail, that they really feel is for sure the, is for sure the tchelas. It has the um, Rav... Uh, Rav Shechter wears the tchelas. Rav Aaron Lechtenstein agrees with the tchelas, but doesn't wear them. He tells the story that when they came to Rav Shlomo Zalman Arbach about why he doesn't wear the Radzina tchelas. I'm sorry. He, when they came to Rav Shlomo Zalman Arbach about wearing the tchelas that, uh, that they've discovered now, that many feel is the real one, so he told the story that when the Radzina Rebbe claimed to have discovered the tchelas and started wearing them, he got locked out of the local mikvah. Mm. They felt that uh, this was uh, against the Masora. Our tradition has it that we've lost the Yitzchelas. You don't come along with novel things and say you rediscovered it. They locked the Radzina Rebbe out of the mikvah. So if Shlomo Zalman Arbach said, I, I think that there's a lot of evidence this is real, but I'm too old to be locked out of the mikvah. <laughs> so so Ravaran Lechvistin also, who considers himself, in many way, considers himself in many ways a student of Shlomo Zalman, while he believes the Tchelas are accurate, he doesn't wear them. Rav Shechter wears them, I believe Rav Tendler wears them, but uh, there's a whole, uh, a whole halachic analysis, because once you wear Tchelas, you tie your tzitzes differently. There's a Rambam tie, a Tosfos, there's different ways to tie. If you'll notice, it's not tied in the classical way that we tie them. So there's a big discussion about the Tchelas. Hold on, Yoni, we're almost done. Just hold your question until till the end. So you wear these Tchelas on the corner. And they are for you, Tchelas. You see them. You remember the mitzvahs and you do them. And then you will not wander after your heart and after your eyes. After which you are seduced. 
so that you'll remember and observe all my mitzvahs and you will be sacred you'll be holy to me and why should you do all this says God because I'm God I took you out of Egypt to be for you a God okay that's the parsha of Tzitzis a number of interesting things here first of all Rashi Pasuk Lamites Sheminyin Gematria Shaltzitzis Sheishmios Ushmonach Sheminyin Gematria Shaltzitzis Sheishmios The Gematria of Tzitzis is 600 Shmonachutin There are 8 strings Vechamish Eksharam And there are 5 knots On each corner Harei Taryag 8 and 5 Is 13 Tzitzis and Gematria Is 600 So That's how the Tzitzis Reminds you of 613 Velosa Suru Acharei Lavavchem so Rashi says, "Kimo mitur haaretz." In Parak Yud Gimel Pasuk Chavei, on the Torah, this very parsha, our parsha of Shlach, um, is discussing investigating the land, the spy mission. So it says, "Vayashuvu mitur haaretz." They came back from investigating the land. Mitur. They were sent on a mission. You could, I don't know why Rashi. It's very interesting that Rashi gave that pasuk. Why didn't he give the opening pasuk of the parsha? Shlach l'chan Hashem v'yaturu es haaretz v'yasuru. Yaturu, Yasuru is Velosasuru, it's the same word. This parsha, I want to give a drush about this, has bookends the same concept. They went Latur to investigate the land. You wear tzitzis, Velosasuru, so that your eyes are not curious and inquisitive and, uh, and investigate like, uh, like they were sent to do in Israel. Halev ha'inayim he'miraglam laguf. So Rashi continues. He says, the heart and the eyes are the spies of the body. Right? The body is tempted. body says, I'm hungry. It sends the eyes out on a mission. It says, look for good food. The heart says, I'm tempted. It sends the eyes on a mission. It says, look at things that are inappropriate to look at. There's a three-way partnership that happens here. This is what happens. The eyes see. The heart yearns. The body carries out. That's what happens. That's the chain. That's the formula. So therefore the Torah says, Don't follow your heart and your eyes that are working in tandem to get your goof, to get your body to do Averas, but rather be more disciplined. I saw the Gra has an insight. The Gra says that we have three different words. Lechafetz, um, Chemda, and Taiva. Three different words that all refer to desire. What's the difference between the three? So he says, what does he say? He says, lechafetz is for food. To desire, when you use the term lechafetz, it means you're for, for food. Chemda, chemda is always, chemda's mamon, is your temptation for money. And tava, taiva is, is lust, is for uh, physical pleasure, is for intimacy. So he says, that's what's going on here. Don't follow levavchem, Einechem, Asher Atem Zonim Acharechem. So Lavavchem, I think, is food. Einechem is your is uh, money. And Zonim Acharechem is is lust. I saw that uh, shot as a takeoff on those three different levels of of temptation. Um, So that's the, the purpose, the function of the tzitzis is to be like the string that you tie around your, your uh, finger. It is to remind you 
of a of a higher calling of a uh, of a higher obligation. It reminds us of the mitzvahs. Indeed, this happened. The Gemara tells us the story of this individual who was uh, tempted and went to be with a prostitute. And at that moment, as he was taking off his tzitzis uh, to be with her, the tzitzis slapped him in the face. And he was reminded by the tzitzis they fulfilled their function that there's a higher calling and there's a higher ethic and that he should not uh, be tempted and he should not give in. And indeed, he conducted himself in the... Uh, in the higher level. So that is the, the, the role of this partial. There's much more to say about this. But I think what's interesting is the connection of Lo Sasuru Achari Levavchem. The way I connected it to Israel, I'll tell you the drush I once gave, is what is, what is, what is the. How did Tzitzis function? Tzitzis function that. What's the purpose of the Tchelas? Tchelas Domel Yam, Yam Domel Rakia, Rakia Domel Kiseh Kavod. When you see that blue string in contrast to the white, the blue string reminds you it's striking like the ocean. And the ocean reminds you of the sky. When you look at the ocean, you can't help but think where the ocean meets the sky. You see the blue of the sky. And when you look up and you think of the sky, you think of the Kiseh Kavod. You think of Hashem. So there's... What the Tchelas require, though, is imagination. It requires creativity and imagination. There's a blue string in front of you. All there is is a plain old blue string. But that blue string is to elicit your imagination to remind you that, you know what, all I see in front of me is a blue string. But if I scratch beneath the surface, I can see more. I can see the ocean. And I scratch a little bit more, I see the heavens. And I scratch a little bit more, I see the Kisei HaKavod. Then I even see Hashem Himself. What was this mission to go into Israel? To go via Turu Asa'aretz. Shlach Lachan Hashem via Turu Asa'aretz. You're going to see giants. You're going to see a land that seems overwhelming. Scratch beneath the surface. See beyond. Maybe that's the connection of the Asuru and Velosasuru of the role of Tzitzis versus the role of the spies, that the mission of the Jewish people is to never be satisfied with looking at the surface. If all we did was look at the surface, if all we did was focus on the threats against our people, against our beloved state of Israel, if all we do is look at the surface, we would become paralyzed, we would give up hope. Our challenge as a people, as a faithful people, a people of faith, is to always look with an imagination, is to always see beyond, is to always scratch beneath the surface and allow our faith to carry us with a sense of optimism that there's more than we can really see. So maybe that's the connection of the bookends, the beginning of the Parsha and the end of the Parsha. Have a fantastic week. Next Thursday is our last class uh, for a little while because then I am away for the month of July. So... Next class is the last class. Next week is the last class. Have a fantastic show.